My name is Grant. I'm a uh, volunteer here at Downtown Community Church. Um, if you guys want to go ahead and flip over to Luke chapter 7, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I once had a professor that told me the greatest attribute of a teacher is their ability to get the people out to lunch on time. So I'm going to try to grind through this thing really quickly. Uh, I'll pray real quick and we'll just jump into it. Jesus, thank you for everything you've done for us. We pray as we come, uh, come into your word, Lord, that uh, you really refresh us uh, with what it is that you have to say to us, Lord, that wherever we're coming from, if it's been a difficult time in life or there are a lot of circumstances going on, uh, Lord, that we can just look to what you have, have to give to us, um, Lord, and that we can just be energized by it, we can be focused on you by it, we can glorify you through it, Lord. Uh, just speak to us this morning. In your name, amen. Uh, except we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. It, it's a really cool story. It's not going to be mind-blowing or, you know, it's not going to be super crazy. It's a pretty straightforward story. Uh, but I like it, so we're going through it. There's two times, you may be familiar with this, there's two times in the Bible that it says there is something that uh, Jesus marvels at. Twice, and, and, you know, we don't use the word marvel very often in our everyday language. It's kind of, there are two things that impress Jesus, that he looks at and he is impressed by them. The one we'll look at today is the centurion who his faith impresses Jesus. He looks to, to, to this guy's faith and it is impressive to Jesus. The other time we're not going to look at um, is the, the people's lack of faith is so strong that it also impresses Jesus, which is an interesting thing. Like, man, so impressive how little you have faith. Uh, and we're not going to talk about that one because I think we all have a lot of experience with having a lack of faith, so we're not going to really talk about how to have less faith. We're going to talk about this faith that impresses God. We'll talk about it for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's kind of, it's a funny concept to me, I think, that something impresses Jesus, you know, that anything at all impresses Jesus, right? He created the heavens and the earth in six days. Uh, he walks on water. He, you know, eventually will come back from the dead. You know, so the idea that anything is impressive to this guy is phenomenal. Uh, and, and even more so than that is if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, wherever you are, man, like you want to impress God, right? Like if you're one of those people that's like always going to the gym and you're always, you have those shirts that like you purposefully cut most of the shirt out so everyone can see, you know, what you've got going on under the shirt. Uh, you're trying to impress the people around you and you're Snapchatting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, well, imagine like instead of impressing these other people around you, you're impressing God, right? That's, a, that's I'm interested. I don't know if you guys are. Uh, but this centurion, his faith impresses God. And, and what's cool about it is we don't even know this guy's name. We don't know very much about him. Um, this story is accounted in, in Luke and Matthew accounts for the story as well. We don't know his name. All we know about him is this story. And so uh, I want to look at it. And I, I think, well, I mean, for me personally, I've spent very little of my time of, of my life being impressive to anybody. You know, I started going bald when I was 19 years old. Um, I, I ran in the, the Jingle Bell Run yesterday, and my buddy who, uh, he was pushing his t- toddler in a stroller, ran faster than me, which means that uh, technically a human that has learned how to walk in the past year ran it faster than I did. Uh, I, 
I wear this, this um, middle school soccer shirt that was my buddy's uh, when he was in middle school, so I have the physique of a strong eighth grader. Uh, I've spent very little time in my life being impressive to anybody, so if I can be impressive to God, it's like, man, I'll take what I can get. Uh, there's a couple things I want to look at as we kind of work through this. Is One, why was it that this faith impressed Jesus? Why is that? I think that's, that's, a, that's a concept or a question that we've got to answer. Why did this faith impress Jesus? And then secondly, uh, how can we have that same kind of faith? How can we get to that same level as this centurion? So those, those are kinds of the things that we want to look at this morning. Um, so like I said, we'll be in Luke chapter 7. And Luke is a great gospel. It's, it's my favorite gospel. Um, and it, it's kind of like the skeptic's gospel. The, what's cool about this gospel is, is Luke was not a disciple. He didn't spend time under Jesus' teaching. He actually didn't come into the Christian faith until much later after Jesus has done all of his work and ascended into heaven. And so Luke isn't necessarily this guy who's telling these stories from, oh, I remember the glory days when we were, you know, when we were all disciples. No, he's telling a story. He's going back and he's just trying to figure out what really happened, what really went on. And so he goes and he's interviewing everyone that, that was at the time, or, you know, wherever Jesus was teaching, anyone who heard his teaching, anyone who saw the miracles he performed. He's just around trying to get all this information. In fact, he writes in the first chapter, he says, uh, he's writing it to Theophilus. He says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may know the exact truth of what happened. And I think it's so cool because it's not, you know, there's not like a ton of bias. There's not a ton of like, oh, I remember this happening or that happening. He's literally just trying to come up with the most historical account of what happened. So reading through it, I think is, is phenomenal. What we're going to look at today is, is a story probably uh, a lot of you guys have read through before. Like I said, it's nothing crazy it's just a really, it's a really good story. I think it's really refreshing. It starts, uh, in verse 1, it says, When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. So it's saying that discourse, what it's talking about is he just finished the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you're religious, if you're not religious, regardless of where you are, even now in this day and age, is one of the greatest teachings of morality that the human race has ever heard. Uh, you know, people are still quoting it. There's so many parts of it that are familiar to us, right? Miley Cyrus says, only God can judge us. That's from the Sermon on the Mount, more or less. Um, that's the worst example of morality I could have given. Uh, that was a mistake. Uh, so anyway, so he just finishes this great teaching, and this is kind of Jesus' inauguration into ministry. So no one, I mean, he's done a couple things before, but no one really who Jesus is or what he's about. And so he gives this great teaching that's basically saying, listen, everything that you've ever understood, things are about to change, right? You've always worshiped God in this way. Well, it's about to change. And so everything he's going to do after that discourse is basically for the next few years, he's going to prove that he is who he says he is. He's going to prove that what he said was true. He's going to start by doing, you know, just simple miracles. People are going to start walking. People, a couple people are going to be raised from the dead. Uh, just, you know, some kind of like neat things. He's going to walk in the water. He's going to tell a storm, get out of here. He's going to do things like that. And then eventually he's going to die and then come back to life, kind of as the, the, the great miracle that shows us he really is God. So he's beginning to kind of go into his ministry. This is the beginning of it. Uh, and Capernaum, of course, is one of the places in which he does most of the healing. Uh, so verse 2 says, And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. 
There's a lot in that verse that I feel like needs to be addressed. One is this guy is a centurion. We don't know his name. We don't know much about him, but we know he is a centurion. Now, a centurion is a, basically a very high-ranking official in the Roman army, um, which is at this point in time the most powerful army in the world. Uh, this guy is a public figure that has a lot of power, right? He commands a battalion of men to go and take over other cities, other nations, things like that. He's got a lot of power. What's also uh, what I, we have to talk about is that um, it says the centurion's slave. And unfortunately, because of our nation's history, because of the things that we experience even to this day, um, that word carries so much pain and anguish, and there's so much uh, that that word carries with it, that I think when we look at it in the Bible, we have to explain, well, what does it mean? Because it's it's a really tough word, and you look at that, you're like, oh, this guy's faith was great, and seems like not a great thing. Well, what's happening here, uh, you'll look later in the New Testament, Paul will condemn slave trading, which is the buying and selling of humans, which is uh, basically treating humans not like humans. We know that the nature of God is that he views us as being made in his image. And so anything that kind of takes away or strips away the humanity of a person is wrong. It is condemnable. It is, uh, God hates those things. And so when it says that his, he has a slave, well, it's not talking about necessarily uh, slavery in that way. Uh, It's not that way because that way is condemned in the Bible. What's happening here, the way the economy works, the way that the the world works and and culturally um, was there wasn't a ton of money circulating. Not, you know, people didn't have like, they didn't own their own property. So these people who are the centurion slaves can't like understand it more as servants or they are employees of this person. So he houses them, he takes care of them and they in return work for him. And the way we kind of know that this relationship is this way is um, it even says it was, he was highly regarded by him. So he clearly cared about this person, the servant, the slave. And in fact, uh, this slave gets really, really sick, and the centurion is going to go out of his way to try to make sure that this person is taken care of. That's how much he cares about them. And so it's, it's kind of a, a different uh, concept than the way that you might initially think when you read that. But it says that his slave, uh, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and was about to die. In Matthew's account of this, it says he was grievously tormented. Right? So he's, he's, he's on, kind of, he's going to die soon. He's very, very sick, and there's kind of just no hope for this person. And the centurion is worried because the centurion cares about this person. And so, uh, verse 3, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So he doesn't really, uh, doesn't necessarily understand who Jesus is at this time, but he hears about this great teaching that this man of God uh, was preaching. And he says, all right, if anyone can do anything, it's going to be that guy. So he sends some Jewish elders to go grab this guy. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, uh, this is the Jewish elders that came before him, they, they earnestly implored him saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him for he loves our nation and it is he who has built us our synagogue. Now, those are two, those are two really uh, important things that they say right there. They may not seem that important, but uh, one is he loves Israel. Now, that is very, very odd for any Roman to love Israel, right? Rome took over that kind of area, and it was a nightmare. Those people were super rebellious. They were always trying to, you know, fight the system. They're like, oh, we serve God, not you guys, uh, and they didn't really serve God. They were, like, really nutty and just doing whatever they want to do, um, 
So the, the, the Roman Empire is always trying to keep Israel in check, right? They're just always having to send Roman guards there to like keep riots from happening. In fact, the Roman army probably hated it because they would always get sent out there and they'd always have to like calm these people down and things like that. And so for this Roman guard, for this or this very powerful Roman person to love Israel is already very strange. Uh, but we'll kind of see why he does that. It says also that uh, he built them a synagogue. Now, then, that entails that he funded it. They probably kind of outgrew their synagogue. And so he funded it. He, you know, contracted people out to work for it. Probably what it means is that he also worships at this synagogue. Now, then, that's kind of crazy for a Gentile or for a Roman to be worshiping the Jewish God is a wild thing because what it, that's not a natural thing. They don't just do that. That means, in fact, a lot of Romans would not like him for that. That means that he probably truly believed that the God of Israel, that the God we worship is the one true God. He doesn't believe in the Roman gods. He doesn't believe in any of that, but he believes that this God is the one true God. That's why he goes to that synagogue. That's why when they outgrew that synagogue, he built them a new one. So this guy is, uh, for all intents and purposes, even though he is a Roman, he believes in the same God that we do. And what's interesting here is when he sends the Jews, uh, the Jewish elders to go talk to Jesus, they say, listen, Jesus, here's the deal. This guy, whatever he asks of you, you should do it, right? Because he loves Israel. He's really religious. He built us a church. Like, he's a great guy. He's a really great guy. He does a lot of good things. And so whatever he asks, you should do it. And we'll see in a second that the centurion doesn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, Regardless, Jesus kind of starts heading towards his way. He says in verse 6, Now Jesus started on his way toward them, or with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent out friends. And so what happens is, is the centurion hears that Jesus is, is now coming to his house. And he's like, no, 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 that should not happen. Like, uh, Jesus is way too important. He's this man of God. It's, I'm, I'm unworthy of him coming to my house. So uh, he already sent the Jewish elders. So now he sends his friends. He's like, go stop him. Make sure this doesn't happen. Make sure he doesn't come over here. Because uh, this is a waste of his time for him to come to me. Um, but he says, he told his friends, say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And so he says, man, this is not wor- I am not worthy of you coming to me. In fact, the whole reason that I sent people to you in the first place was because I didn't want to waste your time. I didn't want you to come to me because I am unworthy of you to come into my presence. And he says, in fact, I, I understand that if you just said he will be healed, then he'd be healed. There's no need for you to come to me. If you just say the word, it will be done. And this is kind of the reason why he believes it uh, in verse 8. He says, For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. Now then that seems like that might be, not be that impressive, right? He says like, oh, well, you know, I tell people to do this and they do it. And then Jesus is like, wow, what an impressive faith. And you're like, okay, that's kind of weird. But what's happening here is what he is acknowledging 
is he's saying, listen, I've got a lot of power. I'm a very powerful man in a very, in the most powerful country on earth, right? I tell people to do things and they do it. In the battlefield, I tell them, kill this person or spare this person and that's done. I tell a person, go do this and it gets done. I just say it and things get done. But what I don't have the authority over is I do not have authority over life and death, right? That uh, someone that I love is dying and there's nothing I can do about it. Even with all the power I have, with everything under my rule and authority, I don't have power over this. But I do believe that if you would just say it would be done, then it will be done. He's acknowledging here Jesus' power over life and death. That in the same way that this centurion could just say something, it'll be done, that he could just say, your servant's going to be okay, and he'll be okay. And it's this faith that is so incredible that Jesus says, he just marvels at it. It says, uh, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that was following him and said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such a great faith. Now then, that's hyperbole, right? Mary had a lot of faith. John the Baptist had a lot of faith. There were some people in Israel that were doing all right. Uh, But he's saying, man, I have, not even in Israel do I see faith this great. And it's because, so the Jews, right? The Jews have been worshiping God for thousands of years. They've been given the law. They've been given the, the Old Testament. They've been making these sacrifices to God. They've been saying that they're following God. And yet the Jewish elders come before Jesus and try to approach him based on this guy's good works. And yet this guy understands, even without all of the past Jewish tradition, understands, no, even my best works are unworthy. Even the best thing that I have to offer is unworthy. I'm not worthy of Jesus coming before me. And it's this faith that impresses God. It says uh, in verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now that it's, it, when we talk about, you know, this, that the problem with the Jews is that they approach God thinking that it, by his good works, he's worthy of getting this servant healed. By his good works, he's worthy of anything at all. Uh, and then we look to the centurion and say, okay, well, he understood that he is not worthy, and yet it's only what Christ can do. Well, I think what happens a lot of times is we think, well, we don't, you know, we don't think that way. We don't think based on works. We totally understand that it's by faith alone. It's not by anything we can do. And, I, and we say that, and I think the problem is, is that it's so deeply ingrained in our brains that we absolutely miss out on where we fail in this every single day. Right? You think of uh, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, how is your, how's your relationship with God doing? How are you doing spiritually? Um, and if you don't have someone that asks you those kinds of questions, you should find someone that will ask you those kinds of questions because, uh, you know, none is righteous, no, not one. I don't know where I would be if I didn't have people that would keep me in check. Uh, but you have someone that comes and they say, well, how are you doing spiritually? And how often do we answer that question with like something like, I don't know, man, I'm doing good. I'm reading my Bible a lot more than I usually do. You know, I'm really spending a lot of time in prayer. Uh, you know, I'm serving in the church and things are going really great. And you realize that you have equated your relationship with God only based on what you are doing. 
And we fail so, so often to see that the, the, the way we answer that question is to say, man, how good is my relationship with God that even in my unrighteousness, even in my unworthiness, Christ is still pursuing me, right? How good it is to just know that, that even in my absolute rebellion that Christ loves me. You see, this great faith that the centurion has, it's great because it doesn't come from him, it comes from God alone. Right? Our faith being great is, our faith, is when our faith doesn't come from us, it comes from God. That, that Christ is impressed by a faith that completely removes all parts of us so that Christ alone stands. The great faith is to say, yes, I am unworthy. Yes, there is nothing in me, no matter how good my works are, no matter what I do, there is no part of me that is worthy of the nature of God. And yet God has done something for me, right? It's not based on what my works have to offer, but it's based on the works that Christ has already offered through the cross, through his resurrection. Now then, in in being completely honest with with what we're looking at in this section of verses, uh, very few people, and uh, probably the centurion falls into the category of people uh, that just don't really, at this point in time, understand who Jesus is in his entirety, right? They don't fully understand what's going on here. Um, You kind of imagine word doesn't spread super fast in this culture, right? If you want to tell someone something, you write it down, you send it to a person with a donkey, and they walk, and then that message gets spread that way. So the understanding of really who Jesus is here is he probably doesn't know fully that Jesus is God. And yet what we can rest assured of is is that he understood this man was a man of God, that that, uh, he was doing the miraculous work of God. And so what he's looking to, although he might not understand who Jesus is in his entirety, is he is understanding it's not based on anything I can do, but it's only based on what God can do. And for us, as, as really having the full scope of Scripture, of really understanding, okay, we do know who Jesus was. We know that he was God. We know that he is God. We know what he would go on later to do. And so we can look to this story and see such a similar thing in that understand that it's not based on what we have to offer, but it's based on what God has offered. That this centurion understood, man, even with all the power and the authority that I have, I don't have power over death. Death is going to happen. It's going to happen to everyone I know. It's going to happen to me, myself. It's going to happen to to everyone around me. And we don't have any power over that. And so he looks to God because he knows only God has power over that. And and so for us, we, we look at this same thing, we look at, we don't have power over death, even with whatever sort of power or authority or wealth or whatever you have, that we don't have that kind of authority. But Christ does. That Christ not only has authority over death, but that he himself overcame death. That he died and in 24 hours suffered one of the most brutal things that a human could go through. And in six hours did on a cross what would take us an eternity in hell to do. And then resurrected from the dead. Overcoming death not only in himself, but overcoming death for each and every one of us who is found in him. That yeah, we might have a lot of power, we might have a lot of authority, we might have a lot of stuff, good works that we can try to offer, but the only way that we can overcome death is through the death that Christ has already overcome. And he looks to God alone for that power, 
right? First Peter 5, 5 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. That in this centurion's humility, he said, I have nothing to offer to Christ. And that is what made his faith so great. You see, the faith that impresses the creator of the heavens and the earth is the faith that completely removes everything that is not Christ. It's that all of our flesh is completely removed, all of our works, everything we have to offer is completely thrown away so that only Christ stands. Uh, The greatest enemy to a faith in God is a faith in ourselves. If you think that's a good line, I didn't think it up. Ben Kemford said that to me like 15 minutes ago. Um, The greatest enemy to a faith in God is a faith in ourselves. What made the Jews wrong and what made the centurion right was that the centurion didn't put a faith in himself. He put his faith in God. The centurions were put in the, or the, the Jewish elders were put in the faith in the centurion, and the centurion says, no, I can't find a faith in myself. There's only faith in God. Right? And so, so when we understand, okay, well, there's these things that I'm battling in my life. There's this sin that's going on in my life that I can't overcome. There's this uh, rebellion, this wickedness that dwells inside of me that I cannot overcome. I'm unable to overcome. Well, the reality is, is that putting faith in yourself to beat that kind of sin, to, to defeat that kind of sin, will only end in failure. But understanding that Christ has already overcome death, that the faith in Christ's ability to overcome sin is what makes faith great. In a room this big, I never know uh, who I'm talking to. I never know like, what kind of circumstances you guys are coming from or what kind of backgrounds you guys have. I don't know if you uh, are Christians, if you're not Christians. I don't know what kind of walks of life you all are coming from. Uh, so one, I want to say, man, if you, if you don't have this kind of faith... Um, I'm not going to tell you to raise your hand or to close your eyes or to do anything that's like culty or weird. Um, in fact, I don't even think that in this time I am able to convince you to believe it. But what I would say is at the end of every service, we have people that come up uh, that you can pray with. And I, I would say, I would implore you, just come up and just ask questions. Just ask them, uh, why is it that you believe that? What is it that changed it for you? What is it that caused you to put your faith in this? Um, I mean, whether you... Believe it or not, I, I just think it's a great thing to discuss, to talk about. Uh, and, and so there are people up here that, that have that to offer, and I would just, I would just implore you to come and, and just ask, what is this faith about? What is, what is it that caused you to believe that? Uh, for anyone else in here, if you kind of have that faith, but you see, man, that faith is so often unimpressive. It's so weak. It's not where it should be. Um, there's a couple things I want to say. One is... And maybe the most important is ask. Ask for it. There's in, in uh, Mark 9, there's this guy who he, he loves his son. His son is paralyzed. And so he brings his son to Jesus so Jesus will heal him. And Jesus says, well, do you believe that I can heal him? And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I think that's so true. Something that, that we should pray every day is, Lord, we believe. But please help us in our unbelief. Lord, we have faith in you, but please help us where we are unfaithful. Please give us strength where we fall short. 
And to constantly be preaching to yourself, man, it's not based on anything that I have to offer. It's not based on my own authority or power or righteousness or good works or anything like that, but it's through Christ alone that we are given life, that we are given eternity in heaven, that we are given uh, this great abundance of life found in him. And the last thing that, that I, I think is really important to, to what makes this centurion's faith so great and how, how we have a, a faith like that is get out of the way. Just get out of the way. I think of, what, what I think of this, I think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of the coolest guys in the Bible. Um, what John the Baptist does, he, he basically comes onto the scene and he says, listen, there's going to be someone who comes who is going to change everything. There's going to be someone that comes that changes the way we understand God. There's going to be someone that, change, or that comes that, that brings us a new way of life. And when Jesus comes, he says, this is the guy I was talking about. Uh, he talks to everyone, that is, uh, his disciples that follows him. He says, don't follow me. Don't listen to me anymore. Follow this guy because this guy is God. This guy is the guy you want to listen to. And from that moment on, John the Baptist begins to fade off into obscurity. Later, Jesus will say that, that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of a woman. And the reason he says that is because in John 3.30, John the Baptist says, He must increase, I must decrease. That John the Baptist's entire ministry was, Don't look at me, look at Christ. Right? His entire ministry was getting out of the way, saying, it's not what I have to offer you, but it's only what Christ has to offer. And similarly, this centurion says, it's not what I have, but it's only what Christ has. I have no power over death. It's only God who can do that. And so I would say, one of the greatest attributes of faith, one of the greatest things about this faith, is us getting out of the way so that Christ can shine. What does that mean? That means when you're in class and there's that person you don't want to share your faith with because it's weird, it's awkward, it's whatever, it's to throw away your selfish ambition, it's to throw away your pride, to get out of the way and allow Christ to shine in talking to that person about Christ. It's, right, we're doing Project Tallahassee next week. Shout out, you should go to it. Um, it's next week when you wake up and you're thinking, it's Saturday, I'm sleeping in today. To, to completely throw away your selfishness and say, no, it's not about me, I'm going to get out of the way so that Christ can shine. That the greatness of our faith, the faith that impresses the God over everything, is the faith that removes us so that only what Christ has to offer stands. It's the faith that says, you know what, all I have to offer is sinfulness, rebellion, wickedness, uh, idolatry, these terrible things. But what Christ has to offer is a sacrificial love. in a resurrection from death. And that if we are found in that, we, through Christ, have overcome death. That he alone has that authority, that ability. And to be found in him is to have an impressive faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done. Thank you so much that you 
freely paid a price that we were incapable of paying. Jesus, that you gave yourself for us, even when we were sinful, even when we were rebellious, Lord, that you loved us and you took on our sin and our death so that we might not have to pay the consequences for those things. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that as we approach you, Lord, that we approach you based only on what you have already done, not on what we have to offer, not on what we have to give, Lord, but only what you have already given. Jesus, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to have abundant life in you, in the heavenly realm, coexisting with you in perfection, Lord. And we long for that day, but we pray until that day, Lord, that we can have a faith that allows you to shine, that allows for you to be known, that gets us out of the way and points to you, Christ. We're so thankful for who you are. We pray that this, this word just refreshes us this week, Lord. In your name, amen.